0: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
1: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
0: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
1: So joining us for a conversation about big data and investing this week, we're delighted to welcome Mark Ainsworth, Head of Data Insights at Schroder's. Mark, welcome. A great pleasure to be here. Welcome,
0: Mark. Mark, before we kick off, could you maybe let the listeners know a bit about you and what your role is at Schroder's at the
2: moment? Yeah, so I'm a data scientist and I run a team of data scientists in Schroder's. And we provide a service to the analysts and fund managers and other parts of the business to get the value out of data to inform decisions. So get the insights that help them
1: make those decisions better. Fantastic! Cool. Yeah, really looking forward to getting in, into all of that. But if, before we get into all that, Mark, maybe just let us sit on one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV or your LinkedIn profile. I'm a real expert at my childhood hobby, which I haven't done for a while
2: since I had kids. But I hope it was church bell ringing. So I've clocked up thousands of hours on the end of a rope, making bells sound. But the bells have been silent through COVID lockdown, sadly.
0: I always thought that looked really fun whenever going to church and seeing the people hanging off the ropes.
2: I predict that the various neighbours of those church towers will suddenly remember how quiet it was when it <laughs> was going. I worry that lockdown's ending
1: will change all that. Indeed. What's the big secret to it? Practice, coordination, teamwork? What would you say? It's all of those things. It's It takes high physical skill, but it is... You've got
2: a set of eight people all ringing simultaneously, and they all have to perfectly line up with each other. So it's a bit like playing a violin in an orchestra. You need to have the skill to do your own bit, but it has to all mesh together perfectly. So it's a great skill to learn.
1: Super interesting. I'm sure there are some parallels there with other things, but we'll leave that for another day, maybe. Mark, so I guess talking about big data, but perhaps a place to start. We sat here in March 2021 talking about big data. There's a little bit of a worry that it's a cliche, isn't it? Just to put that on the table straight away. I mean, do you find that's how people respond to it sometimes? Well, I think
2: there's a couple of things. One is there's nothing about the bigness of data that makes it any more valuable. There is clearly an important idea in big data. We think of big data as anything that's too big to fit in Excel. Excel's the tool analysts and for managers are able to use to analyze data. And there's a lot of stuff that's therefore beyond their reach for that reason. Real big data is something that doesn't even fit in a single regular computer. But the real art in all this is finding what's valuable in data. And there's nothing new about this. So think about a couple of things earlier in my career. My entire career has been helping people make sense of the world and make better decisions with data. Many years ago, I was at Tesco head office and they had a big data warehouse with all of the club card data. That was absolutely big data. 10 years before anyone was using that term. And it was incredibly valuable to understand customers and make much better decisions around marketing about where you build new stores. And before that, even in the late nineties, I started working at McLaren, the F1 team. So my title was race strategy analyst, and I was building various tools, which you could absolutely characterize as big data and sort of AI powered tools to help the race engineers make the decisions about pit stops, about when to bring the cars in, how much fuel to put in and all sorts of tools on the pit wall to inform those decisions. But it wasn't the fact that the data was too big or messy that made it valuable. It was connecting the data with the problems and the decisions being made. That's always been a part of the job I love doing and fascinated by.
0: That's so interesting, the various different roles that you've had, and I guess the applications of data in so many different ways. One of the first questions I was keen to ask you was, I mean, we don't want to take a full step back. I think everyone probably has heard the term big data, but just breaking that down, what actually counts as big data? So you've said it's anything too big to fit in an Excel spreadsheet, but maybe give us an insight into what kinds of pieces of data that you collect and I guess how you collect it.
2: Certainly one very important category of that kind of data that's useful in investment decision-making is what we call the sort of digital dust trail. So consumers leave this dust trail in their interactions with businesses. They search for something on Google and then they browse a website and they open an app on their phone and then eventually they transact. That leaves a trace in their card transactions. They may actually leave a receipt in their email. And there's now a very well-established ecosystem of businesses that make it possible to get insights from that sort of data. And what I've found really interesting is how there are a lot of businesses that have that data and sell it and the insights in that data to the businesses, the brands, to understand their own business and to understand their competitors. And the managements of consumer-facing businesses use that data to work out what to do to run their business. But that's also equally insightful to an analyst or a fund manager trying to understand those businesses. And so increasingly, whilst Tesco, only Tesco has the club card data because it's their data, there's a lot of data sets out there that, in a sense, anyone who's got the right tools and skills to get the insights, can get those. So that's definitely an important category of data. Another example would be weather. So the weather, it's really easy to find out what temperature it's going to be tomorrow or it was yesterday in your city. But there's some really interesting things, like if you're thinking about investing in a, let's say, a company that makes air conditioning units, a core part of forming a view about how good a company is, is to understand whether it's Growing strongly, and, and why is it growing because it's got good management and it's got a fundamentally good business model, or were they just lucky? And so, it's perfectly possible to imagine that from one year to the next, it might have been hotter and they would have sold more air conditioning units. But that requires you to have the average temperature across the whole of America from one year to the next, and that simply isn't sitting around. You actually need the granular, kind of day by day, city by city temperatures. And so we have a database of weather data. It's about seventeen billion points of data. And wow. that's seventeen thousand times bigger than you can analyse with Excel. But that's exactly the kind of analysis we do to inform those sorts of decisions on the part of my analysts and fund manager colleagues.
0: So just picking up the first area that you mentioned, and I suppose I don't know if you've seen it, Mark, but I think it was a Netflix film that was released during lockdown called The Social Dilemma and sort of various I know,
2: I haven't watched it, I'm afraid.
0: It's very good. And we can link to it in the show notes. The broad premise is the amount of data you give to Facebook, for example, and I guess the social dilemma that that provides. So how do you square that with the fact that you're collecting these sort of dust trail pieces of data on consumers?
2: The key distinction there is our client is people who are investing their savings for their retirement. And our responsibility is to invest their capital in a way that is going to give a return so that they will retire as happily as possible. And preferably it does some good for the world in other ways as well, and it doesn 't matter in informing those decisions about the specific people browsing on Facebook. It is really useful to have some sort of indicators of how popular Facebook is, and some independent sort of verification of whether Facebook is succeeding in the strategy that management say it 's following and So the kind of data that you can have just about how many people are visiting the website and what sorts of people in broad terms can be really illuminating for that but it is of no interest to a fund manager what sort of products I search for or what sort of comments I make in my feed, whereas it is absolutely central to Facebook's business model that they know lots about the specific individuals on their platform. And so it's the same sort of data, but you can literally throw away the name and address and the identity from the data. And it's useful at a sort of high level for the fund manager. And it has lost all value from a sort of targeting advertising point of view for Facebook. So that's the key kind of distinction is it makes a big difference.
1: In terms of weighing that data for the fund manager, I mean, I guess that must be the difficult part because I'm sure this point's been made many times to you before, but the robustness of different data sets must be often a bit tricky to get your head around. I suppose, example, looking at Twitter sentiment and things, it can be lots of bot accounts or people that are just going on about one particular issue that might not sort of be representative. Any insights on how you've tried to sort of weigh that over time or assess that? I have to say fund managers are very sophisticated
2: consumers of this data. They're very numerate. They know how to do lots of clever things in spreadsheets. And it is absolute bread and butter for being a good fund manager is that you have lots of sources of information of varying levels of certainty. When an analyst sort of makes a recommendation to a fund manager to buy or sell a stock, they're weighing up the conviction. So it's actually not too hard for us to also communicate that conviction from the data as well. It's I think a really interesting part of our job is to judge what is the accuracy of this data? What is the sort of track record? How often when we convey this sort of information, is it right? And we can say, we think this signal has gone up and there's a, we've got a sort of 70% confidence that it, it will turn out to go up when you see the final result. And fund managers are surprisingly comfortable accepting that kind of semi-strong conviction message because that's their job to weigh these things up. So what we take most seriously, is that we understand how big those error bars are. So it is absolutely central to our job is to master that difficult problem of how wrong might this data be and in what circumstances it may be useful and when it may not be. There's some data sets that you can sort of see the trend, but to the absolute level may be completely wrong because it's not a representative sample or something like that. So that's bread and butter of being a data scientist.
1: But I suppose the point there is if you wait till everything's certain and perfect, then that's kind of useless. So it's trying to get that fulcrum point where it's it's still useful and there's enough robustness to it. It's particularly interesting because
2: fund managers and analysts have always been heavy users of data, the sell side, and everyone produce huge amounts of data. And so the opportunity to generate more value for our clients is by having just that little bit more information than everyone else, or often taking the same information everyone has and interpreting that a little bit better. So a good example of that was. Me and my team have done a lot of work over the last year on coronavirus. And one of my colleagues specifically told me that he felt the early stages and when we started doing webinars, where we summarized what we saw, we tried to summarize our sort of the sense we tried to make of all the data and all the news, tried to kind of cut a line through and say, well, actually, the way to interpret that is this is what's really happening here. And today's news isn't really news. This is still consistent with this understanding of what's going on. The feedback I got was that he felt like he had like a two or three week Head start on the rest of the market in their understanding of COVID, and that's quite interesting. It just shows you that if we'd done that work, but sort of a bit more solidly and reliably, and waited three weeks until we'd published it, it would have provided no value at all. So there's there's a very very clear sort of speed versus sort of solidity trade off at work, and anything that gives a little extra insight is valuable and makes a difference.
0: That's really fascinating. I think we've drifted into the sort of specific applications to investing, which is great, and I guess. Just thinking about the example that you gave, coronavirus is clearly one that's pretty obvious if you're a data scientist that you should probably look at the data around coronavirus because it was such a big event. In more normal times, how do you work out which data you should follow or how do you decide which projects to
2: look at? That is the hardest problem because there's so many things you can do with data that sort of seems interesting or funky or clever, but it is actually not useful. To be useful, it needs to be something that is not already known to the recipient. And so you need to somehow master everything. Like, does any part of the cell side already do that? And is it actually something that somebody can act on and that is missing? And so the trick we use is quite simple. The team in a Institute does two things in parallel. It builds things. So acquires the ability to analyze certain sorts of data and builds tools that let us analyze that data. But the point of your question is, how do you know you're building the right things? Because it's a lot of work. And... The trick is we also just answer questions. We just have like an inbox and we try to make it as easy as possible for people to just ask questions, just one-off questions. And there's a sense in which those bits of work are inefficient. They're time consuming. But every question is a gift because it reveals that the person would value the answer. So it is something that they could act on. And it reveals that it's absent otherwise because they wouldn't have asked us. And the act of trying to answer it also then lets us find out whether it's possible. Can you do it? Because it's all very well saying, oh, yeah, we'll be able to get this sort of data. But you don't know if it really works until you've actually got the data and done it for real. There's so many data sets we have bought and thought, oh, yeah, this will be really useful for this question about hiring activity. And then you actually try and you just discover the data is, to the earlier point, too biased or messy or partial or something. It just doesn't work. It's not good enough for the fund managers then want to act on it. So you've got this constant flow of questions that in answering, let you identify when you have the same category of question over and over, that's the evidence. Let's build a thing that let us do that efficiently. And so the linking of those two things together is our method. The flow of questions
1: is the evidence for the things that it's worth us building, basically. It sort of reminds me of that classic quote that all models are wrong, but some are useful. So you're kind of focusing on asking the question, look, what's useful, what's useful, rather than starting with what's right. And the most
2: important part of the name of my team, so the team is called the Data Insights Unit, and insight is the most important word. And an insight is really just something which changes somebody's understanding of the world. And so that's mostly about what the person already knows and what they think, even though superficially, it's about the information itself. But it absolutely depends on whether the person already knows it and whether it's interesting to them.
0: And just almost a bit of myth busting here as well. The work that you do and the examples you've given sound to me quite different from a sort of traditional quant approach to investing. But without digging below the surface, both of them use lots of data. So can you just give a sort of your perspective on how this is different from a traditional
2: quant approach? Yeah, so I think I've often heard described that fundamental investing is sort of mile deep, inch wide. It's about understanding the specific companies you're investing in and really deeply thinking about how likely is it that that company will be a good recipient of capital. And quant investing is mile wide, inch deep. Often the level of real understanding of the companies being invested in is sort of non-existent. It's about finding patterns and signals that when applied across this very wide range of companies or securities or whatever on average make enough money to make a profit. And and both absolutely are valid ways of investing, but they are completely different. And I think I use that word understanding. And insight is when somebody changes their understanding. Fundamental investing is driven by understanding, understanding the companies you invest in and their relationship with their peers, understanding the way the market seems to be pricing those things at a very specific individual company level. I find it absolutely fascinating entering this industry, fund management is a storytelling discipline. It's about the analyst working out what's a future for this company that seems like it's plausible. That is a story about what might happen, informed with spreadsheets and hard data. But it's a story that they then tell to the fund manager. And it may be a little collection of stories. Here's our central case and the bear case and the bull case. But it's a little collection of stories. And if the fund manager believes that story, then they'll trade on it. And so our place in this is to contribute extra bits of information into that story so that it is more likely than otherwise to be true, to come out correctly. And one way we sometimes talk about what we do is we're filling blind spots. So an integral part of being an analyst in understanding that company is to have information come into them. And there's some bits of information that are, I think blind spots are good metaphor because the blind spot you have in your eye, you don't know that there's a gap in your vision. Your brain sort of feels, you cope without the fact that there's a bit of your vision, literally you don't see something. But if you were to fill it in, you would see things that you wouldn't otherwise have seen. And if our analysts have a better interpretation of the data out there that fills that blind spot than the rest of the market, then that lets them generate alpha for our clients. So it's completely different to the quant sort of methods. And early days, we did look at slightly more quant techniques, like here's a signal and sort of alert people to that signal. But it's simply not very interesting. It doesn't slot into the story you tell about why this is a good company. It's just the fact that this, if you traded on this signal 55 times at 100, you'd make money. That's just got no part to play in, in the understanding the company and why you'd invest in it.
0: I guess thinking about application across the world, emerging markets is sort of typically viewed as where there might be a lot of blind spots because there's less access and there's less data. So does this stuff work in emerging markets? Have you gained good insights in those areas too?
2: Funnily enough, the emerging markets teams is one of our groups that we do the most work with for exactly those reasons. There are the most blind spots and yeah, the most benefits from filling those in. Absolutely. We do a lot of all sorts of things, including quite a few really interesting geospatial Data science pieces. So, if you're thinking about investing in a company that runs stores and working out is there capacity to add enough new stores to grow in line with what management say, or what's the nature of the overlap with different competing chains, that's the kind of stuff we do a lot of in merger markets. Partly because increasingly this sort of analytics is done by the sell side as well. And so, the more the sell side start doing it, a lot of the investment banks have these sorts of data science groups we're happy to lean on those and then we can move towards the other remaining gaps that continue to represent a source of alpha.
1: Super interesting. I mean, I love the way you distinguish there between the quant investing. I've never heard it quite put that clearly. It's really interesting. I'd love to hear to the extent you can share some of these examples of areas where you've seen a story from a different angle because of a particular data set you unearthed or a particularly good insight that you added. And if there's anything you're able to share on that. One example, I just sort of expanding slightly on the one I started talking about, which was a
2: European supermarket chain, and the company had an IPO. And the particular question the analyst had for us was, can this company grow as much as the company say? And so we looked at that information at a sort of town by town level. And two things came out from that. One is we were clear that it would be very difficult for the company to grow quite as ambitiously as they claimed they could. It would require them to have a level of sort of saturation of all the towns that really hardly ever achieved in their sort of bits of the country they'd already got a strong presence in. And secondly, it revealed some quite interesting patterns about where in the country they'd have to add new capacity, which had knock-on effects for their supply chain or the cost base of distribution centers and such like. And it gave them the confidence that they should invest in the IPO, but with very clear awareness that there's a moment to sort of step out from that that they're kind of live to what to watch for in a way that wasn't necessarily obvious. But also, actually, they talked to company management about those findings. And what particularly tickles me is the company management then asks us to share that analysis with them. (laughs) Maybe some of that analysis stuff that they would quite like to know about themselves. We didn't share that with them because it's our proprietary work. But that makes an interesting point, which is this is the sort of analysis that any good company will be doing for themselves. And of course, whatever they find, they will be keeping it secret or being very selective about what they tell the world. So independently, looking at that sort of information is very useful.
0: That brings an interesting question to my mind, which is clearly you've got an entire data insights unit and you've got the backing of a large investment management firm. Is this the sort of thing that's really only accessible to those larger firms that have big teams or is there elements of sort of big data type insights that the small investor or the man on the street have access to?
2: Well, I think that there's certain sorts of parts of what we do, which can be done at any scale. So one example is we use web scraping. So any website in the world can be a source of insight. I've got an example is we look at, for example, the price of tires. And my colleagues who are specifically covering the tires companies actually find it very useful to be able for us to see what's happening in the prices of different tires, different sorts of sizes and shapes and in different markets. And it lets them understand when there's some change in the costs of raw materials or in exchange rates, they can see the degree to which different companies have the brand strength to pass on those costs to their consumers or not. So there's lots of quite rich insights that you can get from that. But in principle, anyone who knows how to code can create a web scraper and start to gather data from public websites like that and turn it into something insightful. There are certain sorts of things, though, where there's a sort of minimal scale problem to overcome. So certain sorts of data sets that are very powerful are expensive to get, they're expensive to have on a database. Literally, I know of one kind of data set which is to do with data gathered from mobile phones moving around. Literally, that just the storage cost of that data is over $100,000 a year before you even start to analyze it. Therefore, that sort of data analysis can only be done by big organizations, either big departments inside existing asset managers or a sort of now well-developed ecosystem of suppliers that sell that to companies. And so every asset manager has the potential to access this sort of data. As I said, the investment banks are doing this as hundreds of companies now in what's called the alternative data sort of industry, sell services that let you for 20,000 for a terminal access this sort of information through some sort of web interface. But of course, you're accessing the same information as everyone else. It's much harder to do something really distinctive if you haven't got your own capability. Data science is a real team sport. You need engineers, you need scientists, you need analysts. There's sorts of different sub-disciplines I mentioned. We have geospatial data scientists. There's quantitative skills are useful in this. And the all-rounder, the sort of data science unicorn, as they're called, who knows all of those things, they don't exist. So there's a minimum scale you've got to get to, to have a viable team. Otherwise, you're going to be getting this stuff from third parties.
1: In terms of the sort of raw data crunching power, is there some kind of minimum in terms of the number of CPUs? You've got some kind of big data center somewhere that's just constantly burning up CPUs to try and analyze stuff, or are you trying to be a bit sort of smarter and smaller scale than that?
2: That situation is changing quite a lot. So. One of the technologies that rose in line with the buzz around big data as a phrase around sort of almost 10 years ago was a particular technology called Hadoop, which would let you take a set of computers and turn them into one supercomputer cluster. And that was an open source technology that let you do that at relatively modest cost. Until then, those sorts of supercomputer clusters was really far, far too expensive for almost all organizations. And that's why big data became a buzzword that time ago, because of that particular technology. But that's actually now falling away. And the cloud, Amazon and Google and Microsoft, have now got very well-developed capabilities that let you access that sort of data without having your own cluster, which has a lot of overheads, getting the computers set up and having a team running them. Snowflake, as a particular database technology, is doing some really interesting stuff to make it easy for people to access this sort of data. So there's more of a kind of pay-as-you-go model emerging for that. But there's no escaping the fact that there's a set of people who know how to do really powerful stuff with this that is a bit of a hurdle to get over. But technologically, it's changed quite a lot.
0: Just bringing it back briefly to sort of insights that you've learned from your various work, I suppose, in big data. So firstly, on the investment theme, has big data or the work you've done broken any traditional investment approaches or theses or what makes a good company? Have you learned something that actually the world was thinking about this wrong as a result of big data or is it finessed around the edges
2: more? I'm afraid nothing profoundly different has come from that. I think we focus on sort of going with the grain of how the firm makes money for its clients. So, yeah, no, we haven't contradicted anything long held. I think clearly there's an assumption that this data won't be necessarily be useful. And finding the places where it is useful is what we've found.
0: My second, I guess, big insight is, have you learned anything about diversity and inclusion or the importance of a diverse team in the work that you've done?
2: Well, I have to say, yeah, in our work on coronavirus, is a very powerful reminder of how great it's been to have a really diverse team so our team is recruited from lots of different industry backgrounds and so we've got a real mix of gender of ethnicity of a neurodiverse team and so for the last year now I've been hosting a webinar where we present our findings on all sorts of things and one of our team is a real depth of expertise in biology and most finance professionals don't have any of that in their background, but he spent time as a bioinformatician and knows everything there is to know about GNA and biology. And so he's had a regular part to play as a sort of chief scientific advisor to the rest of the firm on the fundamentals of how immune systems work. And again, it's been really useful. It's not so much about what's the efficacy of this vaccine, but here's how you should understand how immune systems work. And for this reason, we think that for the first year, we don't expect to see any significant variants emerge because there isn't the selective pressure, but then that will change. And all sorts of things along those lines that are filling in this important blind spot that is relevant to every investor everywhere. So regularly, we send out the invite out to the few hundred listen fund managers in the firm. And we regularly have about 150 people listening to what we're summarizing all about coronavirus. And our colleagues can not have to spend all their time reading all this stuff, most of which contradicts itself. And we try to cut a line through that and really equip people with a clear view through that mess of data.
0: Fantastic. And thinking about recent projects that you've been involved in, so clearly the coronavirus, sort of, if I can call it a project, and you've been giving the firm insights. Are there any other sort of big, long-standing projects that you've been giving frequent updates on, like that?
2: Well, the other key thing is around sustainability. So ESG is a big part of what Schroders is focusing on, and very significant part for data science in that there's all sorts of interesting things about estimating the actual social costs of different sorts of activities that companies go on and baking that into a model that we can then use to make our investments better for the world. But there's also inside of those things, all sorts of really gnarly data problems. Like we depend on estimates of all sorts of things like carbon emissions or salary payments per head. And if the data we receive from our kind of data suppliers is wrong, then that makes those numbers go wrong. And actually finding, making sure that all the numbers we've got are correct and spotting any quirks is a really good example of use of data science. If you fit a model and when things don't fit, that's probably something that somebody should check and make sure is correct. So we can make sure that everything flows through correctly and we're giving good information to our clients.
0: So Mark, as we start to wrap up today's session, it's been such a fascinating discussion. What's the one thing that you want listeners to take away from today?
2: I think the key thing is, The value of data comes from the insights, and it's about connecting the data with people making real decisions. And fundamentally, we found the way you do that is you work with people. It's a team sport. You've got people who know data, people who know investments, put them together to find those insights. And that can enhance value for our clients in all sorts of ways.
1: Cool. And Mark, what do you think is the most underappreciated
2: thing in this whole area? I think just thoughtful Simple analysis of data, actually, sometimes there's a lot of people get carried away with big data and analyzing text data, but sometimes just simple sorts of data, like doing a well-designed survey. It's a completely old school technique has been used for decades and decades. But when you do that well, you can get just the insight that makes all the difference. It doesn't need to use sophisticated techniques and AI to be valuable. I think we've found it's really important to have a team that's got a breadth of skills. So we can do those complex things like machine learning, but we can also do simple things and do them quickly.
0: Brilliant. Keep it simple where you can. Mark, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that?
2: My favorite newsletter for people who are into this kind of stuff, data veers and machine learning and data science, is a newsletter called Data Elixir. And I find it sort of reliably really good source of information.
0: Brilliant. We will link to that in the show notes as well.
1: Mark, that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Mark. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care.